And when you look at our solar system, I have a really hard time believing that Mars, for example, will be such a beautiful place for us to live that we say, you know, instead of having my retirement home in Florida, I have it up on Mars. Because everything I see of Mars is a pretty darn, you know, desert, effectively. So with that being said, I do believe we go into space. I do believe we will colonize planets just because we can and because it's in human nature. I don't believe it's like a mass exodus of humans, like from Earth to like, you know, like Star Trek style, you know, us like zipping around the, the larger universe. So with that being said, we need to be very careful about this little blue pale dot we have and inhibit because it will be our home for a really, really long time. Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. Today, I'll be chatting with Pascal Finette. Pascal's Fast Tracks Executive Director, Singularity University's Chair of Entrepreneurship and Open Innovation, and he's focused on the convergence of exponential technologies. Before Singularity, he worked at some of the leading tech firms. We'll talk about that a little bit more in the program. And now he's helping change the world. We'll talk about how Pascal thinks that AI and the future of intelligence are going to affect our species, what's happening with space technology that no one's talking about, why totalitarianism might outperform capitalism in the long run, how and when genetic engineering will start to impact our species, when we're going to go interplanetary, and much, much more. Without further ado, I give you Pascal Finette. I work from Starbucks and drink a ton of coffee and love saving money. That's why I love the Cash App, the debit card from Square with boosts that save me a dollar at coffee shops nationwide every time. No strings attached, no hidden fees. Seriously. People don't believe it until they try it. Then my mom tried it. She loved it. And you can get $5 free to fuel your caffeine addiction and save a dollar on every cup of coffee every time by going to disruptors.fm slash cash and signing up. I love the Cash App. And coffee. Seriously. Disruptors.fm slash cash to support us, support your fix, and save money on coffee. And now, let's get on with the program. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Uh, it's, you indicated this uh, probably right. It's a, it's a bit of a longer story. And I semi-joke that I probably have a bit of ADHD, so uh, I don't stay at companies for all that long. But the, the, shorter, the shorter version is uh, I ping-ponged between starting my own companies and working for some of the more interesting tech companies um, very often in their formative years. So is that um, you indicated this. I was at eBay in Europe when eBay Europe was about 100 people. And I saw this like, just incredible exponential, truly exponential growth there. I was part of the, the team at Mozilla uh, when we just released Firefox version 3. And you know the web browser was really like heating up and it was a really fascinating time. I saw the launch of uh, Google Chrome, of course. And then I was at uh, Google.org just at the time when Google.org was kind of like refining itself. So I've seen uh, a few of those things. And then uh, in between also started my own companies as well as did a little bit of venture capital where I brought a venture capital firm, which I co-founded from Berlin to London. So my background is mostly in Europe. And uh, about 10 years ago, I came to the Valley originally with Mozilla and 
since about five years, I'm with Singularity University uh, doing, I have the real privilege to do a whole bunch of fun stuff there. So you're at Mozilla and then you went over to the enemy. What is Google Org exactly? Yeah, see, that's, <clears throat> yes, uh, it's not quite the enemy, luckily. So Google.org is uh, Google's philanthropic arm. Um, it was founded uh, the day Google went public and had basically, uh, you might be familiar with the the 111 model Salesforce.com has, which is, you know, 1% of the capital, 1% of the time, uh, and 1% of their ongoing profits, they donate to social courses through the Salesforce Foundation. Google.org was set up in a very similar way. So they got a pretty decent endowment from the IPO. They have access to Google's talent, which they can use, um, as well as have an ongoing budget, which they get from Google's operating expenses. And the, really, the aim is to leverage all those resources to tackle some of the world's biggest problems using technology, of course. So uh, when I, I joined Google.org, the, uh, they went through a little bit of a rebuilding phase, kind of like a, a version two of what they wanted to do. Uh, and the whole team was only five people. $150 million in annual grants they were giving out, uh, $2 billion in services we were giving out, and at least in theory, 1% of every Googler's time we could tap into. So an incredibly uh, rich playground, as you might imagine. And now you transitioned over to a pretty rich playground, et cetera. Singularity University, how did that happen? And how do you see those similarities and differences between the, the corporate side with Google and then the, the purely singularity is purely philanthropic at this point, right? Yeah, somewhat. So the transition happened, uh, so I left Google.org uh, it just it ultimately turned out it wasn't a really great fit for me. I didn't feel super happy there. There's a lot, a lot to be talked about there. Um, I've got the greatest respect for the organization. I really love Google as an organization. And I knew Singularity for a long time. And uh, I basically just randomly bumped into the CEO, Rob Nail, who asked me what I was doing. And I was like, well, I just left Google and kind of figuring out what I want to do. And he looked at me and was like, I want you to work for us and build our startup initiatives. And it was a too good an opportunity to pass up. So I joined them. And uh, to your question around like what is Singularity University, I think the easiest way to describe them is they started out as an educational institution, really teaching um, individuals and organizations the exponential change we're seeing in the world and what to do about this and how do you uh, incorporate this into what you're doing. And out of that, they grew effectively two other business units. One is uh, working with corporations, large corporations, Fortune 500s, on exploring the, the how so like, how do you incorporate this into your businesses? What do you do about this? Um, as well as um, the work I did originally, which was uh, supporting startups, which leverage these exponentially accelerating technologies to solve some really big problems. And the way we did this was, was through incubation, acceleration, and ultimately um, some venture fund um, activities. And that's basically how we got connected and your name popped up. So I want to see what did you learn from working with all of these startups, specifically ones that are that they're going for pretty big changes if they're working with SEO? Hey, quick thing, pay attention here. Pascal's going to point out the big problem with venture capital, what's wrong with the industry, why startups are struggling to innovate, and what you and other entrepreneurs can do to try to change the future and create massive returns. This is important. Pay attention. It's the basis for Fringe FM. It's what we're trying to do. Exponential future tech. And Pascal breaks it all down. Yeah, it's an interesting insight. I think the, uh, the core learnings we, we found was that as much as Silicon Valley uh, proclaims it's extremely progressive and like funds the future, uh, what we found is that the the larger amount of resources, not, if not even the vast amount of resources available to entrepreneurs, is really more tied into the short shorter timeframes. And it makes sense, right? Like if you take an, a typical VC fund, a VC fund needs to return its capital in a five to seven to maximum 10-year timeframe. If you think about some of these really big projects, like uh, if you take something very prominent, like if you are Elon Musk and you build Tesla or you build uh, SpaceX or something, that doesn't happen in a five-year time frame. It doesn't happen even in a 10-year time frame. This is like 20 years out. But of course, the, the potential payoffs are massive. And uh, so we found a, a disconnect for these entrepreneurs between 
what the perception is in Silicon Valley, this like, oh yeah, you have a moonshot and we'll fund it. And the reality of Silicon Valley, which is like, no, 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 what's your business model? When do you make money? How can, like, when do you go public or when can we sell you? So there was a gap and we started filling that gap as well as a few other people are starting to fill the gap. And I think it's, it's as these exponentially accelerating technologies are getting better understood today, the gap is feeling a little bit better. But what, that was one of the really big insights we had, these aha moments where it's like, yeah, the resource in Silicon Valley are actually still pretty short and midterm oriented and not long term. Yeah, they go for the moonshot SaaS companies, but not necessarily the ones that are actually changing the world, which right. is why certain people have trouble raising funds. Is, is the answer a 30-year VC fund? Is it working with endowments that say, look, we don't even care, just make the money go up? How can, how can people tackle it? I know Singularity is tackling it, but how can this be tackled in a better way? Yeah, it's interesting, right? I, I think it, it goes back to uh, the question of like, how do you actually structure venture capital? And when you think about venture capital, really, venture capital hasn't changed all that much. And it's, it has a very specific flavor to it, which is, you know, five to seven to maximum 10 years, typically seven years as a, as a, uh, as a you know, median uh, in terms of like capital deployment and capital return. And then you've got these interesting structures around, like you might, you might have heard this, the 220, which is 2% management fee and 20% carry. So meaning I take 2% of the fund and like fund basically my operations with that. And then I get 20% of everything I make on top of it. And I, I find it interesting that nobody's really questioning these assumptions, right? Until recently. So I think if you see some of these like super funds, which are popping up, uh, Andreessen Horowitz uh, probably being the most prominent one there, they are starting to challenge those assumptions. And then you see SoftBank's $100, million, $100 billion fund uh, totally shifting those assumptions, of course. So I think we're seeing, we're seeing change and we're seeing like SoftBank's uh, approach, for example, is also a much longer term approach. You're basically saying like, you know, 20 year return returns is actually okay for us and also holding, uh, uh, holding our equity stakes in these companies for much longer is a, is a, um, is a different way to think about this. So it is, it is changing, but there are structural issues which are really like so strongly ingrained in like just the way we do business. Well, part of the reason SoftBank's so okay with it is they do have that two in 20. So they're making $2 billion a year managing the fund. So it's, uh, it, is an interesting, it is an interesting conundrum. It's one of those things that it's humanity's designed for short-term gratification. That's how you survived evolutionarily. And now we're starting to get to the, the chef versus the cook where you kind of have to think bigger picture or think longer term, which is why Elon is so crazy and also inspirational is because he can actually think longer term. How do you build that into people? So that's more or less your mission at Singularity University is to shift that focus further forward. How do you do that and how successful have you guys been? So you're right. I think there's, there's a good chunk of that is actually shifting people's perception and their mindset around this. What we found is typically what happens is that when people connect much more to their purpose and the grand, the big ideas which really drive them and thinking about seeing careers, their own career. And as an entrepreneur, when you start a company, it's like, it's part, this is your career, right? Seeing careers as a long-term unfolding and not a, a short-term, you know, jumping from like position to position or from company to company. Once you do that, like, I, I think you open up your mind to like thinking about, okay, what like really big problem can I tackle and solve? There's a reality, of course, in there, which is like somehow you need to make money, right? In terms of like, you need to pay the rent, you need to pay your people, et cetera. So I think that's the, the tension every entrepreneur always finds them in, particularly if you're going for the, like the long-term, like the moonshot things. As to your question of like, how successful are we? I'd say the jury is out, but the, uh, we have some companies which are hacking at this problem for quite a while, doing really crazy stuff and, and seeing and feeling uh, the success now. So uh, probably most prominent three companies I can talk about Made in Space, they created the first 3D printer, which works in zero uh, or microgravity. They have a 3D printer on the ISS. 
printing uh, replacement parts for the ISS and tools and such. And their big game is, of course, not to create a, a, a singular 3D printer, but their big game is to, to create and manufacture in space, uh, which is crucial if you ever want to be a, a, a real spacefaring nation, of course. If you're wondering why a space printer is so important, don't worry, you're not alone. The thing is, going to space, the vast majority of money goes into the fuel launches. If we can print things in space, suddenly we can shortcut all of that. I know a lot of you guys knew that, but just in case. Now, let's get back. We have a company called Matternet. They were extremely early in the uh, drone delivery space. So space, when they started talking about it, basically people just, they were laughing about them, right? And now, of course, it's much more reality. And then a company called Modern Meadow, they are growing uh, leather in petri dishes. So effectively, uh, they found a process to completely synthetically grow actual leather. Uh, and again, like when they started out, people were basically saying, you're crazy and this doesn't make any sense. And you know now they've got, uh, they just launched their first uh, collection in collaboration with MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So, you know, like these things are coming. None of these companies has made their like big breakthrough billion dollar company or something because they're still like years away from that. But we're seeing traction going into the right direction. And with that, also the, the meatless foods and all of the things along those lines, you see so much change and innovation happening. It sounds like you're more or less just dealing with a, a TED conference every single day, which sounds like a dream job. But I have a, I have a problem or a question. So sure. if you look at public markets and private markets, mm-hmm. in my opinion, public markets are stupid and short-sighted and reward people for doing things that hurt the business in the short, long term to get short-term rewards. Private would arguably be a bit of the opposite. So they're focused more on long-term, but still, let's not have too much of long-term because we got to get our nice cars and raise a new fund. Both of those are a little bit too short-term, but I see the problem of blockchain having instant liquidity, creating that short-term mindset. Are you focused on blockchain at all? And what are your thoughts on the future? Yeah, interesting. So by the way, I, I 100% concur with, uh, with your assessment around public markets, particularly. Uh, it's one of my big pet peeves that the, the uh, public markets, particularly since we have uh, shareholder maximization theory since like the 50s or so, have created absolutely perverse incentives to be extremely short-term and lead to very negative societal outcomes, right? Like it is in a public market setting, it is often advisable for a company to do things which are bad for society, like pollute rivers and you know the environment or whatever, to generate short-term returns and then get rewarded for that. Hey, quick call out. Make sure you're paying attention here. Pascal's about to blow your mind. If you thought the stock markets were efficient, think again. Um, there's, by the way, there's a really interesting study which was done by, I believe, Harvard Business Review, which said that when they interviewed uh, Fortune 500 CEOs, they said that 80% of those CEOs they interviewed said that they would forego an investment which will yield long-term uh, high returns for something which boosts short-term the next quarter, which is, you know, this is crazy. I mean, this is bad leadership, right? Ultimately. But clearly, as you said, like the public market incentivizes this type of behavior. So 100% agree. Private markets are a little bit better. I agree. Uh, blockchain is really fascinating. So I'm looking at blockchain pretty intensively uh, as of late. And I think the jury is really still out. Like blockchain to me feels a lot like the internet 1994, 1995, right? So uh, there's the ICO craze, which is largely all like, weird bullshit. Uh, You've got the cryptocurrency craze, which is a good chunk of that is just hot air and wildcat banks from the 1800s. And then you've got the underlying technology, the blockchain itself, which has transformative power uh, in particular in areas where you required trust before or trust was expensive. So in terms of your question of like, how does blockchain potentially create like longer or shorter term incentives? The interesting question for me is less about the technology. It's much more about what do we encode in our behaviors and contracts, right? So I'll give you an example. So if you think about a public uh, market, I can actually encode in the public market long-term thinking by, for example, giving you voting rights to my stock 
depending on how long you hold the stock, right? So if you hold my stock 15, like 15 minutes, you have no voting rights. If you hold my, my stock for 10 years, you actually get voting rights. That is currently not encoded in our, in our public markets, right? Like if I'm a, uh, an activist investor, I just buy up stock and then I suddenly have voting rights and I can change the course of the corporation. In a blockchain scenario, in like a, let's say a smart contract scenario where the blockchain, a token represents ownership in a company, like in an equity token, for example, I could encode these rules in my, in my token and thus create tokens or ownership shares, digital ownership shares, which are actually aligned with a long-term thinking. So I think it's mostly a question of us encoding it and not the question of the technology itself. I agree, but that's very dangerous because then you're screwing the future because then when people want to get involved in the future, suddenly they're more or less worthless and they feel like they own nothing compared to the ones that have been grandfathered in. It's like when you go into a town and you see the guy who has the shithole house that's falling apart and makes everything else look terrible, but he's been here forever, so we can't kick him out. Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. Of course, you have. Of course, you, you need to be careful about like the, the I, secondary. Yeah, effect. I like that. I like the hard coding idea. Yeah. I want to shift this a little bit, and so I want to bring up something you said earlier. So you said something to the effect of, um, "We need three D printers in space if we're ever going to become a, a nation that's intergalactic." Mm-hmm. And I thought it was funny that you said "nation" versus "world." And I want to get your I want to get your <laughs> thoughts on when humanity goes interplanetary. Will we have nations? What's the future look like? And what are you guys thinking about and brainstorming towards? Oh, my God. That's a really... Okay, so you caught me on a on an interesting uh, semantic. Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. So on one hand, you have the the agreement of the, of the nations of this world currently to say space can't be owned, uh, which I think is a great idea in general. It is, a, it is an interesting question because I think there's still like a good chunk of individuals' identity wrapped up in some construct of community and belonging. I'm not sure if that community belonging is is necessarily what we call today the nation state, or there's some theories and like some people like toss them around. And I probably agree with those. Is that we're probably identifying on an actually much smaller scale, right? So even in the U.S. and you know I'm not a native of like living here, like I wasn't born here, but in the U.S. we identify typically with at the very least our state, right? We like a lot of people don't say like I'm American. They say like oh I'm Californian, or even more they say I'm San Franciscan or I'm New York, right? I'm a New Yorker. So I think there's an interesting like cohesion of like an, on a much smaller scale um, where we, we do belong together. And my hope is that we can then, and I think it's healthy because we need belonging. And my hope is that we can transcend that then into saying, okay, so then as part of like me being like, let's say a San Franciscan, I also belong to this bigger construct, which is called humanity. Granted, current political movements probably don't indicate that this is happening anytime soon, sadly, like globally, right? But yeah, my hope is that, that when we do this, the, the, step into space that we can probably leave that that crap behind us. But I think time will tell. It's a good question. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't see how you can have an interplanetary species that has nations. Just be, there, there's so many problems that come in. It could be interesting to see if and how blockchain could have a better governance structure. But then again, you're fighting against governments to have a better governance structure. It's uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing. What um, what interesting topics or challenges are you thinking about on a daily basis or weekly basis? It's a good question. So I think one is somewhat related to the question you just brought up, which is really around the societal uh, changes and the societal readiness we have for the changes we're seeing brought onto us through technology. So anything from the future of work, you know, what does this mean, like when we've got more robots and AI and so on taking over jobs and and professions, what does this mean for people to, you know, like the the way we consume information and how much do we believe information? So the whole fake news debate, et cetera. So I think that's one big chunk of work I'm, I'm interested in. I'm looking at and and discuss a lot with uh, with experts and politicians around. And the second one for me is I have a, a, a deep interest in the future boundaries, if there are some, of what can we do using uh, genetic 
manipulation, right? So the whole idea of like synthetic biology. So when we start not just curing diseases, but like, you know, genetically removing them from us or attacking them, but really the question of like, or so what does that, like, what does it mean for us as humans? Like, and when we can start modifying ourselves, when we can start modifying our environments, Harari, the guy who wrote Sapiens, you know, like keeps talking about like, we become gods, right? And there's an interesting thing in there. It's like the, the notion of like creation, like creation of something which hasn't existed before. There's really interesting risks involved. And opportunities, of course. So I, I, it's a fascinating topic for me. What happens if it doesn't happen before we're interplanetary? Will there be different evolutions on different planets? Yeah, that's a really good question. So uh, let me say something probably controversial for my singularity friends, because like they are uh, most people in the singularity university universe are very they're space geeks, right? And you know, I have a I have a sweet spot for space. Warning: bold prediction coming. But I have a very hard time seeing us. So as a first step. I believe it will be really, really hard for us to get beyond our solar system, right, just because of distances. And then when you look at our solar system, I have a really hard time believing that Mars, for example, will be such a beautiful place for us to live that we say, you know, instead of having my retirement home in Florida, I have it up on Mars. Because everything I see of Mars is a pretty darn, you know, desert, effectively. So with that being said, I do believe we go into space. I do believe we will colonize planets just because we can and because it's in human nature. I don't believe it's like a mass exodus of humans, like from Earth to like, you know, like Star Trek style, you know, us like zipping around the, the larger universe. So with that being said, we need to be very careful about this little blue pale dot we have and inhibit because it will be our home for a really, really long time. Any ideas on a time horizon? Uh, on when we go to Mars or? Uh, just living off of Earth with more than a couple hundred, couple thousand. I have no idea. I literally have no idea. I, I, I don't think I will see this in my lifetime. You don't Sorry. think you'll see it in your lifetime. Okay. Elon would be so disappointed in you. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, Elon, like when you talk, when I hear Elon, Elon's vision isn't like he wants to go to Mars, but I haven't heard him say, oh, and then we'll have a colony of like, you know, 100 million people living on that planet. His target, his target's 3 million. So that's the, that was the entire basis of SpaceX was that was the number that he figured, okay, we need this many people so that humanity doesn't inbreed itself. So then if anything happens to the to Earth, then at least we have a backup plan. So that was the yeah, whole bringing down the cost, et cetera. But, um, <laughs> we'll have to see. It's a, it's a very interesting world. And it's one, that, it's one that everyone is not paying enough attention to because of smartphones and shit, which we were talking about a little bit before. How do we get people more excited about shit that actually matters? Uh, that's a good question. You know, I find like when I talk to people on an individual basis, people actually do care. Like, I have yet to find someone who's, like, sitting there and says, like, you know, I don't give a shit that, that children in Africa are still dying because of malnutrition or something, right? I think the, 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 the pieces for me, like, in this puzzle to get people to really care about, like, the important stuff is helping people to find something they actually personally connect to in, a, like, a purpose and a passion sense. And understanding that, like, you know, like, you might not connect to a particular cause. You might not connect to the fact that, you know, we run out of fresh drinking water in South Africa, for example. But you might connect to something else. So for, for us to like unearth that, what do you connect to? And then the second one is the common note I get is this like, it's overwhelming. I don't know where to start. And I get that. I mean, like a lot of these problems are pretty substantial and they can't be solved by, you know, a single person sitting somewhere doing something. But I was just on the phone with, um, with someone who's doing something around uh, uh, plastic waste in oceans. And um, he's got this really amazing argument. He's basically saying like, listen, like if you care about that, that subject, like the simplest thing you can do is don't drink out of a plastic bottle, right? It's a simple thing. It's like, if we all like, you know, if we're starting to do that, we can actually change the course of history. So it's this like getting people like excited about something they care about and then giving them opportunities and showing them ways to do something which matters. And then there's, a, there's the, if they want to leap beyond that then really connecting them and say, you know, 
for you to build a startup, like think about not building that startup as a, you know, whatever, social mobile photo sharing app, but build something which actually matters. Let's play, let's play devil's advocate a little bit. Sure. So you look, at, you look at the US and you look at China and they couldn't be more different and they couldn't be more similar. But one thing you'll see is that in the US, people talk about caring. Mm-hmm. And in China, the government says, okay, we're going to care. But then something actually happens. Mm-hmm. Do we get to the point where humanity needs a totalitarian government because the masses cannot do the things they should? They become obese. They litter and destroy the world. They do all of these things that they shouldn't because we're based off of short-term gratification, sex evolution, and all that good stuff. That's a fascinating question. I, I recently had a question, uh, a similar uh, debate with someone uh, who made a very compelling argument to say, listen, if you run a billion people nation, you can't run that nation in like a, a, like a democratic process. And he was contrasting China to India, which India at its core is democratic. You know, granted, it's like somewhat broken, but it is democratic. And then you've got the totalitarian uh, Chinese model. And, you know, clearly the Chinese model seems to work at least in lots of dimensions better than the Indian model. I think it's an interesting question. I think the the question for me becomes, can you find systems where you preserve individual rights in a meaningful way? So I, I actually believe like ultimately we are post-democracy. Like we're moving towards a world which is post-democracy. I think that's the, the short version. What that world will look like, I don't know. Um, we have the Chinese model and I think the Chinese model has some very clear flaws around like, for example, your your personal freedoms. And yet it also performs fairly well in other areas, as you pointed out. So it's going to be an interesting space to keep an eye on. Yeah, look, it looks like a Star Trek 0.1. Yeah, totally. And, so, and let's see if they can take over or not. That's a whole That's a whole nother story. So what is the most interesting topic that people aren't talking enough about? Huh, interesting. It's a good question. So one, it's a little meta, and I'll give you a very, exa- a very concrete example. I think we're talking, we're starting to talk a bit about, you know, like the ethical and moral implications of technology, uh, particularly around the field of AI. Uh, and this is mostly driven by very vocal people like an Elon Musk, for example. I think we're not talking all that much about the, the ethical moral implications and what we want this world to be in many other domains. And yet those technologies move very forward very quickly. I'll give you a very concrete example. There's an artist based in New York, Heather Dewey Hartboard. And what she does is she takes cigarette butts which she picks up on the streets of New York, which on a cigarette butt, there's your saliva and your saliva is your DNA. So she extracts the DNA, sequences the DNA, and then reconstructs your facial features based on the DNA, and then builds a 3D model, which she then, she then 3D prints and puts into an art gallery next to the cigarette butt. And her whole point is to kind of throw up this question of what can I know about you by just by the stuff you leave behind, by your traces. And uh, there's a really wonderful video I used to, I, I show, uh, I love to show to like audiences and throw up this question that A, what she's doing is not illegal. There's not a single jurisdiction to the best of my knowledge in the world where this is illegal. But more importantly, we haven't even talked about like, are we okay with that as a society? Like, do we want this or is this okay? Or is this only okay in certain circumstances? Let's say, for example, on a crime scene. Like so, a serial killer that just got caught from the yeah, exactly. sequencing. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, like for me, that's the big thing we are not talking about. Like the these like these deep societal questions and it goes back to your question or your point about like, you know, like, are we moving into a, a Chinese-style economy because it's the only way we can actually manage these complex economies anymore? It's a similar question. And we need to have that conversation. So do you, do you see these type of technologies then, specifically genetic engineering, leading to different races or species of humans within the, within the next 100 or so years? Yes, unfortunately, yes. So I think that we, what you'll see is we will have people who will enhance themselves. 
and we will get to a world, uh, you know, one of my colleagues at Singularity describes this as the super haves and the haves. And the super haves are people who can either through, let's say, genetic modification, but also by technology augmentation, uh, create, you know, enhanced uh, body and mind capacities. And there's a really interesting, weird little example is, uh, you might remember Oscar Pitorius, the guy who ran on, on cheetahs, right? These blades. Mm-hmm. And he ran, you might remember, he ran in the abled Olympics um, as a disabled person. And it was like this big thing where it's like, you know, everybody was like, oh my God, this is so amazing. And if you were part of the hardcore running community, which I was part of, I was an amateur athlete in the space, there was a really, there was a whole different debate because the different debate was that the cheetahs, the blades, already had a better energy return than normal legs. So in some ways, you could make the argument that the guy actually cheats because he runs on something which he augmented his body, not willingly, of course, he didn't cut off his legs to like replace them, but he ran on, on a technology which enhanced him beyond what the human capacity was, right? And so there was this whole debate about like, is that actually okay or is it not okay? So it's a really fascinating world. Yes. So I believe we move into a world where we already do augment ourselves. I mean, just think about breast augmentation, right? Like just the most simplest one, or like some people like replacing their teeth or, you know, like getting fake hair and all that kind of stuff. And we'll move into a world where we will replace body parts and and augment ourselves with technology and we become a different species. We definitely do. And it'll be interesting, especially in sports, if they have, they keep these things legal or illegal, because if they're illegal and suddenly you have high schoolers that are twice as strong as LeBron James throwing down on him, you're going to have some problems where the legal, illegal boundaries come in. It's a, it's an incredibly interesting field. I want to jump into the lightning round. How's that sound? Totally. Sounds good. So you were an investor. What was the first investment you made? Uh, first investment was a uh, e-commerce company, uh, which basically did kind of like a couponing thing. How long were you in VC? I personally was in VC only about two and a half years because I realized the VC fund existed way longer, but I realized for myself that I actually didn't like the VC world all that much because I wanted to be more involved on the operational side. So from an operational side, excluding Singularity University-related companies, what are the two most exciting for you today? Oh my God. Uh, Amazon, 100% Amazon. I think it's the most exciting company, the most craziest company you can find. And Jeff Bezos is just insane executor. And the second one is, this is a really good question. I like a lot of the stuff which Google is pushing forward in like some of their weirder corners, like the Google X world uh, and their researchy world. So I think those two companies are definitely very high on my list to look at. Google has to. All their money comes from search ads. If we go to voice and we get rid of search ads, Google needs somewhere for that money to come from. What, uh, what was the biggest mistake you've made so far in your career? Oh, my God. I fucked up so many times. I can't tell you. I honestly don't know. Like, I'm a person who's like, I'm okay making failures and then I'm moving on pretty quickly from it. I don't know if I made, I had the opportunity, I think at one point I had the opportunity to potentially join a company which was called Alando in Germany, uh, which later became eBay Germany. It was acquired after 90 days being active for $50 million and a whole bunch of stock. And I said no to that opportunity when it presented itself to me. So that was probably one of the dumber moves I did in my life. Shit, it happens. What, uh, <laughs> what industry are you most excited about today? So outside the, of the, the, uh, the usual suspects like AI, I think AI is really interesting and, and related robotics and uh, other fields. Uh, synthetic biology is, is what I find really fascinating. What side do you come down on AI? Are you in the Musk camp or the, the Bill Gates camp? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, so you might know Andrew Ning, uh, teaches at Stanford, uh, was the head of uh, AI at Baidu. I'm on Andrew's side. So Andrew's side is basically to say, listen, we are decades away from what, what Elon Musk basically predicts in terms of like these evil AIs. And for now, like AI is just basically this, like it's a tool in our toolbox and it does make stuff much better. So I'm really firmly there. I don't believe that AI is a, a harbinger of like, you know, like Skynet ultimately anytime soon. It'll come eventually, but not, not 
anytime soon. Okay. As long as Arnold is back in form, then we'll, yeah, totally. we'll be good. So what? Uh, then we clone this guy, right? Like we just clone Arnold and have like an army of little Arnolds. And Ar- little life, Arnold can never be little. <laughs> what, uh, what resources, blogs, podcasts outside of Singularity University do you go to daily, weekly basis to stay informed? Totally. So uh, futurism.com is a really wonderful um, uh, blog, uh, which I, I adore and read daily. Um, and it's a really great source for like understanding what, what you know, where the, the world is moving towards. There's a newsletter called The Exponential View, which I think is a really fantastic, probably the best newsletter about particularly around AI and the implications of AI. So between the two of those, I already have a good chunk of my, my daily kind of consumption. And then uh, I geek out on Hacker News. Um, and that Always gives good. Me, yeah, right. And it gives me a good overview of like what's happening in the more like nearer term, but like the tech space. So once we get to the genetic engineering time, we'll just call it that, even though that's a terribly simplistic way of putting it. What would be the first enhancement you want, obviously, outside of extending life? Uh, you mean for me personally? For you personally. Ah, it's a really good question. What would I like? You know, some enhancements to like uh, in, my, in my sports world would be really nice. Uh, I mentioned earlier, I'm a pretty passionate runner. So having way better VO2 max and being able to like just, you know, outrun my, my age class would be super fun. Runners, get that runner high. It's always good. Just takes freaking forever. That's right. Thank, thanks for coming today, Pascal. I know you're a super busy guy. You've got a lot of companies, startups, innovators, entrepreneurs, all the good stuff to work with. Where's the best place for people to reach out and say, hey? Uh, so uh, one of the interesting things about myself is to the very best of my knowledge, there's not a single person on this planet who actually has my name, my exact name. So if you Google me, you'll find a shit ton of my information and uh, uh, you'll find my personal website, which is finet.com. And it has literally all my contact details on it. I'm a pretty sociable person and a pretty open person. So uh, by all means, I feel free to reach out. It's incredibly lucky. Matt Ward, what could be more generic? <laughs> Matt, your typical white guy name. Almost everyone has it. So good luck with the uniques. Thanks for coming on today, Pascal. Thanks for having me. This was uh, super fun. Yeah, this is fun. It's been, a, it's been a nice, interesting dive into the future of everything. Yeah. And uh, if you guys enjoyed this, say hey to Pascal. Tell him he's awesome because he is. Hey, hope you enjoyed the episode. Did you know you can make a tax-deductible donation to Fringe FM to support our mission? Yes, you heard that right. Tax-deductible. You can support us in the work we do and all the good that we're trying to accomplish in the world, or you can save your tax dollars for the tax man. It's your choice. We like to think we're a bit more efficient and important for the world and hope you do too. Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a registered 501c3 nonprofit that's focused on advancing science worldwide. This means that you can write off your donation for tax purposes, and possibly even get your employer to match the donation. All of these would greatly impact the level of good we're able to do in the world, and the quality of show we're able to produce. To learn more about supporting Fringe FM, and whether your gift would qualify to reduce your taxes, please visit fringe.fm give. And really, if you care about our mission in the world, and the work that we're doing, please consider supporting our efforts. You are quite literally deciding whether or not we continue, and how much of an impact we can make. Again, it's fringe.fm give to learn more and support our cause. Thank you so much, and have a great day. If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, or go to fringe.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.